So, Jill, how's your week been? Well, I've had better weeks, Andy. I've been, I've spent most of it unable to move uh, in any kind of meaningful way. Lucky, I lucky, see. like you know, locked-in syndrome. My eyes still work, so I've, I've been able to read. <laughs> but I have been afflicted by that most marvellous of 18th century, the, the you know, the, the, the malady of kings, the the gout, which has struck yeah, me uh, down. Well, I shouldn't. We should. What we should all pause and think <laughs> is actually it's really painful. My father-in-law suffers from gout, and a third, a third can of barely all, move. But it serves him right for living like a Tudor. <laughs> I, a third of all men. Well, it's. I have to say, much as I'd love to, to, to I mean, I look uh, much like Falstaff, and I, I like to feel <laughs> that I, I live with that kind of spirit. But in fact, it's a bit more prosaic. I mean, a number of people I know who suffer from gout are thin as whippets and uh, yeah. are fit as fiddles. It's a sort of genetic thing about your inability to process uric acid. Um, I don't, and I, I, I suspect that, you know, there are probably deep uh, other reasons for why we come down with these inflammatory illnesses like cancer. Or, but it's, it's, uh, it's not much fun. But it does mean if you're feeling even. What have you been able to do? Though? Well, I can I can read and I can you know I can write emails. So uh, effectively, I exist just as much as anybody else. <laughs> in get myself elected as president on that basis. Indeed, indeed. Um, that's can, been that's been another the, thing. The, cra- the, the strange the strange thing about uh, about gout is it's, it's close fellow traveller is is melancholy. Uh, yeah, it does, make yeah. You quite, it does make you quite depressed. I don't know whether that's a function of pain generally, but I think mm. it's, it's... That's funny, because I've got that covered. I, I've, <laughs> <laughs> I've got melancholy, and you've got the gout. I've got so, melancholy. So we're, well, I, it's also it's a good, um, it's a good preamble, because I, uh, I think melancholy it comes up a lot with the, the, the writer of his book we're going to be discussing in Backlisted. So. Great segue. Great segue. So, hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Once more, we're gathered round the kitchen table in post-industrial Islington, (laughs) the canal side (laughs) office of our sponsors Unbound, the website that brings authors and readers together to create great books. I am John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. And I'm Andy Miller. I am the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, our 50 great books, open brackets, and two not-so-great ones, (laughs) close brackets. (laughs) Save my life. And joining us today is the author Kit Duvall. Uh, after a 15-year career in the legal profession, uh, Kit's first novel, My Name is Leon, was published earlier this year by Penguin. And as of yesterday, it's just been shortlisted for the Costa First Book Award. Woo! So a big and not at all patronising, well done you. Thank you. <laughs> and um, thanks for coming. How do you feel about being on an awards shortlist? I think it's great. Um, I'm not one of those <laughs> people that would ever say, oh, no, it's beneath me. I don't believe in them. I'm just massively chuffed. I want the award. I want to win. Yes, <laughs> excellent. Good. I you love it. over broken glass. I, yes. I, I, I'm still totally, I still think the greatest acceptance speech of all time was, was Antonia Byatt saying, I'm delighted because now it means I can buy that swimming pool for my house in France that I've always wanted. <laughs> <laughs> Which I just thought, yes. Yes. That's enjoy. Why not? Enjoy. Um, I mean, I thought wonderful thing that Philippe Sands did did giving his prize the Bailey Gifford to the uh, yes. refugee charity but I thought a lot of rather pointless discussion about whether authors should or shouldn't give it it's totally up to the author isn't it's it bonkers. I mean I think it's he's a QC right so and, and, and it's a brilliant book by the way um, yeah East West City but it, it's um but don't, but don't shame people no. into thinking I can't have this God. money and enjoy it and in some instances use spend it to pay it my electricity bill. Or on or fags and booze, frankly. I literally <laughs> have got a story about this <laughs> that I would so like to say out loud but, now, but, but I can't. Oh, Lordy. But if, uh, as Danny Baker would say, if you uh, press the red button now <laughs> while listening, <laughs> you'll be able to hear that story. So... Uh, um, and um, so, uh, John, digressing already brilliantly, um, the book that Kit has chosen for us to talk about is um, So Long, See You Tomorrow by William Maxwell. And I just want to tell very quickly, before we get on to the next bit, how we came to be sitting around this table. So, um, Kit, you and I did a panel, didn't we, last yes. month up in Durham? Durham. Durham. Uh, what was that panel about? It was about what makes a classic and what qualifies as a classic and are there any overlooked classics. So we were talking away for the... Not amu- at all germane to this podcast. For the, for the amusement <laughs> and uh, edification of uh, a, 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 an impressively sized audience. Yes. Uh, so we were talking away and we were talking about a novel called Stoner yes. by John Williams. And 
we were, <laughs> I'm not carrying this one alone, we were agreeing that although that is a very good book, yeah. it maybe isn't a classic. The great, it's a good book. Yeah, it's a good book. It's a good book. Maybe it's not a classic. And Kit said, I'll tell you what is a classic, though. So Long, See You Tomorrow by William Maxwell. Have you heard of that? <laughs> <laughs> heard of it? Heard of it. <laughs> I said, I, and I approached you afterwards and yes. said, I know, I know a podcast you could come and <laughs> appear on. Because, John, what is your connection well, with this Well, my connection book? is that I published it in the UK. I think it had actually been published by David Godwin in Secker in Hardback. Right. That was my... Uh, but it had done absolutely nothing and disappeared. And um, I was... I, literally, it's one of those stories. I, I was at Frankfurt and had a meeting with uh, the Andrew Wiley agency. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> didn't usually presage anything of interest. And I was given a copy of uh, All the Days and Nights, the, um, the, the stories of William Maxwell, which had just been uh, published by Knopf in the, in the States. Um, you know, the classic thing, you don't, you don't really realise. I had a vague notion that Maxwell had worked at The New Yorker, um, and I hadn't read So Long, See You Tomorrow. But uh, I got a kind of care package of, of Maxwell books from various out-of-print editions from Wiley, took them back and <coughs> started to read them, and it was that thing of, this is just, I mean, an outrage. That this, that writer, it's like discovering. It's, it's, you know, this almost never happens for a publisher. A, a truly great 20th century writer who isn't in print. And incredibly, at that stage, who is still alive? It was like yes, yes. we should say we're talking yes. about the book was published in 1980, wasn't it? And it then was, it was serialised in the New Yorker. That's right. And then it was published, published in '97. By the time I, yeah. our edition came out, the, the, the Harvard edition came out. So long, see you tomorrow. So long, see you tomorrow was the um, was his last novel. The stories were published um, after that. Yeah. So that's why this is going to be a, a slightly different episode of Backlisted. But like all episodes of Backlisted, I start off by saying to John, or he says to me, <laughs> uh, "Well, I'm going to say to you, Andy, what have you been reading?" Uh, thanks. This is going really well. We've been doing this since year. Is it our 25th now? 20, yeah. yeah. God. Oh, amazing, isn't it? So I've been reading a book that I'm going to state openly uh, is published by Unbound. Yeah. Uh, I have no connection to Unbound beyond the fact that I come and sit in their kitchen once a fortnight and we talk about books. But this is a book called You Took the Last Bus Home. The Poems of Brian Bilston. And it's a brilliantly funny, clever book of poetry by a man who's not really called Brian Bilston, I believe, who is known as Twitter's Poet Laureate. And I had been following him on Twitter for a while. And I would... I'll just read you the first... I'll read you the title poem first. It's called You Took the Last Bus Home. It goes, You took the last bus home. Don't know how you got it through the door. You're always doing amazing stuff, like the time you caught that train. Oh, wow. <laughs> right? So, so he's really funny. The little, there's a sort of slightly John Hegley-ish thing going on, maybe a little bit of Stevie Smith. I know he really likes Stevie Smith, as we do here on Backlisted. And so I've been reading some of these poems with my son, my son who's 13, and I read him one of these poems, and he guffaws with laughter. Right, he genuinely. So we, so we were, we're, do, we're reading them with, you know, and we're enjoying reading them. And then we got to a poem called "Refugees," and I'm going to read this poem. And all I'm going to say about this poem is, we read it, and at the end of it, my son burst into spontaneous applause, and took the book into school with him, and got his teacher to read it out to the class. So I'm just going to read this poem. It's called Refugees. And what you need to know is it has a note at the bottom that says, Now read from bottom to top. So here it is. They have no need of our help, so do not tell me these haggard faces could belong to you or me. Should life have dealt a different hand, we need to see them for who they really are. Chancers and scroungers, layabouts and loungers with bombs up their sleeves cutthroats and thieves they are not welcome here we should make them go back to where they came from they cannot share our food share our homes share our countries instead let us build a wall to keep them out 
It is not okay to say these are people just like us. A place should only belong to those who are born there. Do not be so stupid to think that the world can be looked at another way. Now read from bottom to top. The world can be looked at another way. Do not be so stupid to think that a place should only belong to those who are born there. These are people just like us. It is not okay to say, build a wall to keep them out. Instead, let us share our countries, share our homes, share our food. They cannot go back to where they came from. We should make them welcome here. They are not cutthroats and thieves with bombs up their sleeves, layabouts and loungers, chancers and scroungers. We need to see them for who they really are, should life have dealt a different hand. These haggard faces could belong to you or me, so do not tell me they have no need of our help. Good grief. Isn't that brilliant? Have you heard that before? No, it's fantastic. Isn't that incredible? Incredible. Incredible. Technically, 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 brilliant. But also the reversal is so, it's it's so deeply satisfying as well, because your your mounting sense of outrage is really first poem. And then it completely, put, I mean, it's... it's it, Perfectly constructed. I, I really, it really uh, blew us away. You know, we've been reading what is a very accomplished, funny, enjoyable book, and then he just throws that down. And given the various events that have happened in the incredible yes. year of 2016, one that we're all enjoying. Let's not forget, there's still nearly six weeks to go. <laughs> Who knows what could happen? Jesus it was so, it's William so great. William Trevor it's, this week as well. William yes. Trevor. I know. So it's called You Took the Last Bus Home, The Poems of Brian Bilston. I can't imagine it wouldn't be a much welcome Christmas present. Wouldn't you say, John? I, well, uh, it'd be churlish <laughs> of me. But yes, I, I mean, it's, it's so, he's so creative. And so creative on the page. He's got a brilliant thing he does with uh, Excel spreadsheets, manages to, yeah. <laughs> manages to find poetry in an Excel spreadsheet. What I love about him, actually, is he's, his ability to go from the, the, the kind of the silly, which is like the first poem is, you know, the catching the bus, to something like Refugees, which is actually really, I mean, it's, it's, it's truly affecting. And, and, and in, I mean, it, it expands again that sense of what poetry can do, which I think if I was teaching poetry to, to a, you know, a screen-based generation of young kids, Brian yes. Bilston would be a brilliant place to start because he, he's just, he gives you... He just gives you that sense that words can do things that nothing else can. There's a really brilliant poem here called Life is an Inspirational Quote. (laughs) Do you know that one? Every every day is a second chance, and each day a festering boil to lance. (laughs) Paint the sky and make it yours. I'll add this fun task to my long list of chores. (laughs) Imagination is more important than knowledge. Yeah, it helps me pretend I made it through college, and so, and so, so on and so forth. So these, but these, because when he um, when he writes his uh, poems on Twitter, yeah, they're they're obviously within the uh, restrictions of the um, yeah. of the form, yeah, or he, or else he, he you know, Makes, yeah, yeah, one of two, but, one of three, yeah. 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 yeah, or else he does a little screenshot. But, but these aren't are these new or are these collected from? I think these are collected from Twitter and yeah, some new are. poems as well, right? There's some, there's some new stuff as well. I mean, it's, uh, it's a surprisingly... I was amazed. But it's a surprisingly chunky book. <laughs> and <laughs> only twelve ninety nine. good value. Value for money for those Christmas... That tricky last-minute Christmas buy. <laughs> but I've actually been reading another book... Excellent. ...this week, which is the Costa First Novel shortlisted... Uh, my name is Leon by the ah, author Kit Duval. Which is something I never, never, the first time I've ever done that on this podcast, but I was reading it last week. Right. And I, I, I can say, I'm going to look at you while I say this, it's absolutely brilliant. Oh, it is absolutely brilliant, right? I heard you talk about it in the summer, and I wa- I, there were a couple of things I wanted to mention about it. The first thing is, no spoilers, mm. but there is a scene that takes place in this book during the Notting Hill... Is riots, that right? The, the, the riot, yeah, riots. In what year? In 80... 1981. In 1981, which reminded me, and anyone who listens to this podcast regularly or knows my work will know, I wouldn't say this lightly, <laughs> it totally reminded me of Absolute Beginners Goodness, by Colin yeah. McInnes, which is my favourite book oh, of all wow. time. Which has, which has a <laughs> Which has a scene at, in the... Notting Hill race riots of the late 1950s okay. and just on the level of being able to read different approaches 
to a similar scene. You did great. And you've never, you don't even know the book, no, which I is don't. It, no, it, I fantastic. Don't. So that's the first thing. The second thing was, I know uh, when I saw you talking in the summer, you were talking about social workers. Yes. And w- one of the things that My Name is Leon does so brilliantly is deal with social workers Fairly. as though they were human beings. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Could you say, was that something you really wanted to do in the book? Um, what I wanted to do in the book was to be fair and to be true. I mean, that was my overriding consideration when I wrote the book, that I wanted this to be not a book about blame. It's so easy to blame lots of people in the book because there's a crap mom, yeah. there's an alcoholic father, there's a really awful uh, foster carer, and there are some dodgy social workers. When I say dodgy, from a 10-year-old boy's point of view because they've taken him away from his mother. That's no spoiler. I wanted to be... I mean, I've worked with social workers for many, many years yeah. and I've seen these people up against the cold face in the most difficult circumstances, having to remove children, having to go into the most terrible circumstances and remove children out of violent houses, uh, drug dens and so forth, doing their best. And what we hear from social work, what we hear from the press and what we hear about social workers is how bad they are because they're in the press when things go wrong, when they fail to act on a child and that child's killed or whatever. 99.999% of the time, they're doing fantastic work under the most difficult circumstances and I wanted that to be true in the book and for the adults to see in the book, of course, from a nine-year-old boy's point of view, you're keeping me from my mum, so I don't like yeah, you. Yeah. But actually, the adults can read through that and say, what is, what's the choice here? What is the choice that social workers I, have? I, thought that, I, I just thought it was so... In a way, it's a real indictment of, you know, we want our, these children to be looked after as best they can while doing it for as little as money as possible Absolutely. and demonising the people who do it. Yes. You know, and your book just gives them such <laughs> dignity... Yeah. It makes it clear it's such a tough thing to have to deal with a totally. situation that shouldn't even be happening, yes. right? Quite, exactly. They're, they're not there because things are great. Because when things are great in your life, you'll never see a social worker. It's when things start to break down, you're getting these people coming into your most private, intimate life and making a judgment and sometimes taking your children or putting your grandmother in a care home or whatever it is. Yeah. They're coming in and doing the nasties from, generally speaking, people's points of view, and certainly from the press point of view, media point of view, that's what we see of them, them coming in and doing the nasty. We never see when they come in, they do great, great things. And also, if you have an interest, as I do, in the confectionery of the early 1980s... Of course, yes. Kit has that covered as well. Absolutely. Did you have to research that? I did, actually. I had to eat quite a few Curly Whirlies, Rolos, uh, which aren't made anymore, actually. Rolos aren't made anymore. Rolos aren't made anymore? They're not made anymore. It's already gone now. It's gone. Um, but I've lost two fillings to Curly Whirlies in the name of research. Uh, I did go to the website. I feel another of podcast Randry. entirely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I ate quite a bit, yeah, and it was lovely. They're only 10 pence. I had to find the melting point, actually. You know, gripped in a little boy's hand, what is the melting point oh, of Curly yeah, Whirlies? Yeah, yeah, did yeah. You? Found it. Found it. Brilliant. <laughs> so, when did you, to go back to So Long See You Tomorrow, then, when did you find this book? When did, it, when did you first. I think I read it in the 90s. Um, I don't know, mid-90s. I can't remember. It would have... Yeah. I mean, I, I picked everything on uh, what it looked like. I mean, you know, I hmm. never... I didn't have any reference. I had... It's just like a bottle of wine to me, you know. I literally go for the label. Um, and <laughs> I just saw it and thought, I don't know this, I haven't heard this. And the edition that I have here, which is the one yes. published by Harville, published by John Mitchinson, in fact... True. Yes. So That's this is he, he made the decision to make this book look like this, which is why you picked it up. Absolutely. Amazing. Because it's beautiful and spare. And it also is a perfect... That cover is a perfect reflection of what's inside yeah. to me. Obviously, you don't know that yeah. before you've read it, but the, it's perfect, just the look of the book. Can I, shall I read the blurb on the back? I think we should, we should, should definitely we? talk a little. Get, we, um, I, I, I think we should get straight into Maxwell because there's so much. Let's, let's do, start with the blurb. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. Why do, my okay, reading, why don't my you reading read, this why don't week, Andy, has the, been mostly William Maxwell. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's it. Yeah. I, I, so I'm just, I'm, I'm afraid I'm just folding my after. I mean, it's much more interesting to hear. You've had a lot. To, about, you've had a lot to deal with. 
Well, it's been great. I mean, on, on one level, and yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and just I've started. I have started. My name is Leon, and I saw Kit talk at the Penguin Sales Conference earlier this year, and was just so struck by the uh, utter confidence and 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 clarity with which you talked, and the fact that you were prepared. Which I, it sounds like a ridiculous thing to say, but actually, novels about social workers, novels about mm. the subjects that are still tragically rare. So rare. And, and it's it's sort of madness if you think about the culture yeah. that we live in, yeah. um, and what fiction can do. I mean, you're in in, in a tiny little potted account. The the, the 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 thing that Andy and I bang out all the time: the transforming quality of fiction that it can change the way you think Absolutely. about, and, and and enlarge your sympathy and empathy for other people, and make you, and, and also get you. I mean, Maxwell will come on to is is a really good example of of an yeah. author that can do that for you. So. Well, I'm going to read this blurb in a minute, and I'm looking forward to reading it because I reckon it was written by John Mitchinson. It probably almost oh. certainly was. Great, OK. We'll pick this up again after some adverts. Stay tuned to this. Could you just read the first two few paragraphs, paragraphs or two sure. paragraphs of So Long, See You Tomorrow? Yep. Chapter one, a pistol shot. The gravel pit was about a mile east of town and the size of a small lake and so deep that boys under 16 were forbidden by their parents to swim there. I knew it only by hearsay. It had no bottom, people said, and because I was very much interested in the the idea that if you dug a hole straight down anywhere and kept on digging, it would come out in China, I took this to be a literal statement of fact. One winter morning, shortly before daybreak, three men loading gravel there heard what sounded like a pistol shot, or, they agreed, it could have been a car backfiring. Within a few seconds, it had grown light. No one came to the pit through the field that lay alongside it, and they didn't see anyone walking on the road. The sound was not a car backfiring. A tenant farmer named Lloyd Wilson had just been shot and killed, and what they heard was the gun that killed him. It's so good, isn't it? I mean, it's so spell. I'm just going to... I've got a quote from Maxwell here about the beginning of the book. Uh, This is from his Paris Review interview. Have you got it? We've both been... Oh, yeah, but it's an amazing interview. He says, Originally, the first sentence of So Long, See You Tomorrow was, Very few families escape disasters of one kind or another. When the New Yorker bought it, the editors were troubled by the fact that for the first 20 pages, it read like reminiscence. A good many readers don't enjoy that sort of thing. And over the years, the New York have been blamed for publishing too much of it. Very, very dry, Maxwell, isn't it? Unbelievable. Actually, if writers don't put down what they remember, all sorts of beautiful and moving experiences simply go down the drain forever. In any case, the New Yorker was afraid that readers, seeing also that it was very long, would stop reading before they discovered that it was really about a murder. So I moved things around a bit at the beginning. Uh-huh. Because that phrase does appear. Yeah. The phrase that he was going to start with, that does appear in the book. So he, but he, we should say that William Maxwell, the fact that you need to know about William Maxwell is not merely that he was a novelist, he wrote half a dozen novels we're going to talk about in a minute, but he was also the fiction editor at the New Yorker magazine. For 40 years. For 40 years in an era... Of the, where, of the great, where he his, was the editor of. Authors, do you want, I mean, well, let's, we'll, we'll come on to it. But, right. but what the man, the person that we're talking about today, is a craftsman in the best possible sense, craftsman of stories, sentences, both those things, um, and we'll um, talk about sentences as, as well. Yeah, and um, so, but j- let me just read the blurb then on the back of this copy of So Long, See You Tomorrow. <laughs> so you, John Mitchinson, <laughs> wrote this. I got the quote from Richard Ford as well. Did you? Yeah. Do you want me to read that as well? <laughs> okay, no. so what... No, don't read it. Well, you can if you want. It's all right, says Richard Ford. Yeah. No, he doesn't. He's, <laughs> he says something more in-depth than that. So Ford says, For writers of my generation, William Maxwell's So Long, See You Tomorrow is the book that made us all think we needed to write a short novel and magically, since Mr. Maxwell's book is so magically deft at being profound, that we could do it. But my God, what a model to take on. Easier to bottle the wind. It possesses that daunting quality impossible to emulate. It makes greatness seem simple. 
Wow. That's pretty that's good what, quote. That's what I it? call a puff quote. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then, so, and then you wrote, right, you, you <laughs> following, following Richard Ford, follow that. Here he comes. Two families deep in rural Illinois had shared much and then too much with jealousy leading finally to sudden death. A tenuous friendship between two lonely teenagers, the narrator whose mother died young, and Cletus Smith, a troubled farm boy, is shattered. It is Cletus's father who has committed the murder, and now the son retreats wholly from public view and the stares of the morbidly fascinated. The narrator never exchanges another word with Cletus, but many years later he sees him in the bustling corridor of a Chicago high school. They pass without a word. Fifty years on, still haunted by guilt that he has failed in a fundamental act of compassion and friendship, the narrator tries to reconstruct the events that led up to the murder. In doing so, he vividly conjures up two families, two failed marriages, and the farm tragedy that led Clarence Smith to murder his neighbour. Wow. Again, you know, I receive no payment for saying this, <laughs> but that's really good. Very good. That's really very, very good. good. Uh, I thank you. Um, well, it, it, it does address the, one of the things you have to address with this book is that there's no point in spoiler alerts because you no. already know within the first few pages you know that somebody's been killed and you know that, who the murderer is. So that's, it's, that's one of the things I love most about the book, I think, is that it's, it, it, is, a, it is a mystery. It yes. is a kind of a thriller. But it's, it's attempting to put together the, the, to unpack the reasons, the, the motives, the emotions that fed into this kind of act. I should just add, I've got another little quote here which is very relevant to, the, to, to what you were just saying and what we were just talking about, where the Paris Review interviewer says, how do you know when it's time to write another novel? Is it some sort of instinctual act, like the impulse that impels birds to migrate? And Maxwell says, I expect to live forever, <laughs> and therefore I never get worried about what I ought to be writing or about anything undone. In the case of So Long, See You Tomorrow, I was sitting at my desk and something made me think of that boy I had failed to speak to. Yeah. And thinking of him, I winced. Yeah, it's and I saw myself wincing, and I thought, that's very odd. Indeed, that after all these years, you should have a response so acute. Maybe that's worth investigating. And, that's, and so that's what I set out to do. Now, having read more Maxwell in the last month or so, I have read this before, I think, but I realised... Kit and I, we were saying, weren't we, that he, what does he do? He sort of, he's constantly circling yes. round. Yeah. Yeah. He, he worries at this thing. He picks it. He picks it. it. It's like a scab that he, he, it's, uh, it's barely healed and he keeps picking it up and seeing, is the, is the wound still there? Yes, the wound is still there. It's, but but it's, la- at like, at, at, at decade-long yes. intervals, right, yes. that, 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 it, that the different novels often return to very thinly veiled autobiography. Yes. And the stories as well for things that had happened. I mean, John, you know about this, things that happened to him in his childhood. And well, I think maybe we should do this. Should we do the biography, yeah. give everybody a bit, bit more? Uh, he was born in 1908 in Lincoln, Illinois. It's important to say that Lincoln, Illinois, is four-fifths of his output of stories. He wrote lots of stories. He wrote six novels. He wrote a memoir. Uh, he wrote a couple of children's books. Um, he's pub- published a couple of co- correspondences with Frank O'Connor, wonderfully titled, my favourite title of any, any book ever, The Happiness of Getting It Down Right, <laughs> which is both as a writer and as an editor. You know, but, um, he, uh, his mother died in 1918 when he was 10 years old, which is the key, the absolute key to Maxwell's life. Um, he was, so he, in, to some extent his work is always going to be about his childhood, um, and this book, the last novel, is certainly about that. He moves to Chicago. Uh, nothing. Uh, I'll come on a little bit to talk about more about his mother's death. He moves to Chicago. He goes to uh, University of Illinois. Goes to Harvard. Ends up teaching creative writing, and then finds himself at the New Yorker in 1936. Uh, he's published one novel at that point, uh, Bright Center of Heaven. Uh, at the New Yorker, he is becomes fiction editor for 40 years. Okay. Shall I just give you the, some of the names here? So William Maxwell was the variously, at various points, the editor of Vladimir Nabokov, John Updike, Sylvia Townsend Warner, J.D. Salinger, John Cheever, Elizabeth Taylor, Frank O'Connor, Mavis Gallant, 
Shirley Hazard, of course, Eudora Welty, and so on and so forth. Eudora, Eudora, Eudora Welty described him as, for, for, he said, she, she said, if you're a writer of fiction, he was HQ, he was headquarters. So Maxwell was kind of had this. Salinger, I didn't know this until I started to research for the... Salinger drove out to the Maxwell's country home and read to them over the course of one long afternoon the entire uh, uh, first manuscript of, uh, of um, Catcher in the Rye. Wow. That is how highly in regard <laughs> Maxwell was held as an editor. Um, and, I mean, it's very, very hard to find anything that, you know, he was, he was a kind of one of those human beings. He lived a maybe I'd say a little bit, he was very lonely. I mean, he had a very lonely... And I think after his mother died, he suffered absolutely terribly. And you can feel the suffering for that is in, is in the book. And he married late. He married Emily, um, or Emmy, as she was, he always referred to her, as the most beautiful woman he'd ever, he'd ever met. And they had two daughters. His first daughter was born when he was 46. So he had the happy family life. And again, the, 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 the subject, the great subject of Maxwell's fiction is family, home. He once said he was trying to write a natural history of home. Mm. And I think it's one of the things we've kind of always got to talk about with Maxwell is why is he not better known? For somebody who was, you know, he gets this reputation of being a writer's writer, and he is that for sure. But he is also, I think he is an amazing storyteller. We, we, I must, um, before we move off this, I must add the... Um, have you got that quote, John, about sentences? About yes. sentences in, I, I, I've got in the quote. New Yorker? Yeah. So all those writers we were just talking about, he, he, every writer requires, like writers do, requires different editorial input. Right? So Salinger, he, he, Salinger wants to read to Maxwell. Elizabeth mm-hmm. Taylor, there's letters between Elizabeth Taylor and Maxwell which are wonderful in terms of their... He was incredibly nurturing... Incredible. To her, yeah. Uh, but equally, he's he's asked about um, Cheever. What did you do for oh, Cheever? Yeah. You got that quote. He says, "I don't know what service I provided for Cheever, except to be delighted with his work." <laughs> right. He also had this thing: is he he was he learnt very early on that that editing was it was you know you did as little as possible. I think when he there's, there's a wonderful story um, which you've probably got as well, where one of the, one of his predecessors, or I think it's probably. Um, it was probably um, Harold Ross himself, you know, said, that you, did, you, did you teach at any point, Maxwell? You know, and, of course, he had taught creative writing. He said, the point is not, the point is, as an editor is not to teach other yeah. people how to write. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's one of those, that, one of the reasons I love the happiness of getting it down right, you know, working as a, as, as a publisher, it's just, it, he writes really long, detailed letters to Frank O'Connor and he gets quite short <laughs> Letters back, yeah. um, but if you wanted how to help, how to help a writer be better, which is all you really want to do as an editor, there is no one. It's the best thing in the world I've ever re- read in, in that regard. It's just mm. giving the advice that when you, but also it's that deep kind of trust. And he was because he was three days a week at the New York, New Yorker, four days a week. I mean, he all he cared about in the end was writing. I mean, he was he 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 lived mm. it. He, it was his whole life. He went to bed famously at ten o'clock every night. If you were out at a dinner party with Maxwell, he'd leave at nine forty-five so he could get up at six and be fresh in the morning to write. Um, he he says here, I'm going to give you this little quote. You know what what do all those writers have in common? Those New Yorker writers. He says something that's characteristic of the writers who appear in the New Yorker is that the sentence is the unit by which the story advances, not the paragraph. And the individual sentence, therefore, carries a great deal of weight and tends to be carefully constructed with no loose ends, and style becomes very important. Now, that is utterly brilliant, but is also, of course, completely applicable to this book, To So Long, See You Tomorrow. Often when I was reading it, I don't know if you found this, that the... you seem to cover vast distances in a single paragraph in terms of emotional distance. Yes. What you were being told about a character's emotional development had been thoroughly concentrated down into the correct number of sentences. Totally. And then you moved on. 
And I actually, several times, I had to stop, go back, reread because I felt I was reading too fast. Yeah. De- definitely. Yes, yes, there's so much meat in there. One of the um, phrase, uh, paragraphs in here that I read maybe three times, I mean, I've read the book a long time ago, read, reread it for this. The paragraph where he talks about his father remarrying. And he said he once saw a snake trying to swallow a frog. And it was so repulsive and so terrible. And he said, that's what was happening. And I read it and I thought, it's grotesque. It's a grotesque image. And for him, that's what was happening. And I thought, oh, that's ugly and it's horrible. And as a boy, you know, he must have been frightened. I was frightened of that image as an adult. And I stopped, you know, I couldn't get past that paragraph. I kept thinking, I just can't read on Hmm. because... That's awful. And I've got a little glimpse of what it was for him to see his place in that family usurped. That's how he felt about his father being remarried, that he lost his tenuous uh, position with his father. Yeah. He also strikes a really good example. You know the thing we were talking about, or I was, there was the, the quote from him about how he was sitting at his desk and he thought about this event that had happened 50 yes. years earlier and what... what one gets the impression from this book and from the fact that he returns to the same events to describe them from different perspectives that he's acutely aware of a phrase or an image that he may have seen or he may have heard somebody say like the phrase, so long, see you tomorrow in fact that he then lodges in his head for reasons he can't understand and the writing becomes a way of ex- exploring why that should be. Yes. You know, and you were saying something about the phrase so long see you tomorrow being almost it's nothing, right? Absolutely. And yet everything is in it. It's everything. It's that, it's that whole story within four words that it, it is about um, today and, and the future And it's also about something lost within that phrase because it's the end of a relationship. When he says that, even though he doesn't know it at the time, it's the end of a relationship and something that's going to... That moment is going to stay with him because it's the last communication he had. Shall I just read that little passage in the book? Because you've got got these basically these two stories. They've got Cletus's story where his family's... Something terrible is happening in his family. You know, his his dad is... um, He's obviously consorting with the neighbour's wife, and you, you just you can feel that he's having to, he's been separated. And then the narrator, who is kind of Maxwell, is obviously dealing with his mother's death. So this is this is the paragraph. When I was a child, I told my mother everything. After she died, I learned that it was better to keep some things to myself. My father represented authority, which meant to me that he could not also represent understanding. And because there was an element of cruelty in my older brother's teasing, as of course there is in all teasing, I didn't trust him, although I perfectly well could have about larger matters. Anyway, I didn't tell Cletus about my shipwreck as we sat looking down on the whole neighbourhood, and he didn't tell me about his. When the look of the sky informed us that it was getting along towards supper time, we climbed down and said, so long, and see you tomorrow, and went our separate ways in the dusk. And one evening, this casual parting turned out to be for the last time. We were separated by that pistol shot. It's just it's so beautiful. It's, you know what? It's it, really it, it beautiful. Is, though, isn't it? It's, it's, beautiful. it's so beautiful. It, it moves the story on, but it's also that thing of being able to dip down into into the what the two conflicting emotions coming together. It's it it is Fantastic. it is a, a rare thing, isn't it, to have a book? I think it does that sort of. It does actually get better if you read it. Yes, it, does. The more it, it can bear rereading. Yeah. Well, I, I really found, like I say, I think this is the second time that I've read it, and uh, I read a couple of other of um, Maxwell's novels at John's suggestion. John, your favourite is Time Will Darken It, isn't it? Um, I have to say, it, it, yeah, it was, but I, I, going back to see, like, you know, yeah, the thing yeah. is, uh, reading it 20 years after I published it and being older... Um, I do. I mean, I don't think I ever underestimated it, but I think once you've got more life under your yes. belt, this book becomes more remarkable because, well, for the pure, in a way, what, what Ford said, because it's it's so compressed, and I suppose having more appreciation, perhaps, of the of the technical difficulty of trying to compress yeah. a lifetime 
And it's like that thing is, you know, from Bunny in They Came Like Swallows in 1937, right at the beginning of his yeah, career, yeah. to the narrator. And so I, I mean, he's still, he's still dealing with still this. Still wrestling with well, it. Well, I found, um, I have to say, I read, I, I, read, um, I read They Came Like Swallows, and, uh, which I'd never read before. And that totally blew me, totally blew me away. I mean, I love So Long, See You Tomorrow, but they yeah. came like swallows precisely because I just read yes. <laughs> So Long, See You Tomorrow to then go back 40 years and see a younger man's account of some of the same events from three different perspectives, that of him, yeah. his brother and his father. I read it and thought, why isn't this? This is an incredible to think this was written in 1937 as well. It's so... Um, Modern, actually. You know, what's so interesting, Kit, what you were saying about So Long, See You Tomorrow, is you would read it and say it seems elegant from any time. Well, you go back 40 years, he's writing something that actually feels could have been written in the last 20 years. It's extraordinary. And also, picking up on a point you just said, technically, and and I, I did a creative writing master's and also I teach on them, and one of the things you say over and over in creative writing, stick to the point of view, stick to a point of view, so long, see you tomorrow. It's probably got twenty points of view. In it. yeah. It's got a dog, Aunt yeah, Jenny, the, dog. the, the housekeeper, dog. the housekeeper's, yeah. uh, you know, neighbours, what they think of the housekeeper, and the barber, uh, obviously the main players. Everyone's got a point of view, and nothing is lost by that. that. Is, that's, that is so there's that. There's the technical facility. I'd also like to the thing that I was most, I found most extraordinary in this book and which I'd like to ask you both about, is there's a point. I assume it was near the end of the serialisation. It was serialised in two parts in The New Yorker. And this is on page 56. He does a very uh, audacious thing. So he's been talking about the events, and we, we are led to assume that we've been reading memoir or, you know, highly autobiographical fiction. He says, I don't know where he is. It isn't at all likely that we will run into each other somewhere or that we would recognise each other if we did. He could even be dead. Except through the intervention of chance, the one possibility of my making some connection with him seems to lie not in the present but in the past, in my trying to reconstruct the testimony that he was never called upon to give. The unsupported word of a witness who was not present except in imagination would not be acceptable in a court of law. But, as it has been demonstrated over and over, the sworn testimony of the witness who was present is not trustworthy either. If any part of the following mixture of truth and fiction strikes the reader as unconvincing, he has my permission to disregard it. I would be content to stick to the facts, if there were any. The reader will also have to do a certain amount of imagining. He must imagine a deck of cards spread out face down on a table, and then he must turn one over, only it's not the Ace of Hearts or the Jack of Diamonds, but a perfectly ordinary quarter of an hour out of Cletus's past life. But first, I need to invent a dog. So good. Now, I think that is absolutely extraordinary, because what he's doing in his own quiet way is saying to you, here you go, you thought you were reading a novel, maybe. (laughs) You weren't. I'm about to write a novel. And and what I found so interesting in this book is, in a sense, it's a novel within a novel or a novel within a memoir. Mm. I thought it was going to be... I don't know what I thought it was going to be the first time I read it. I think I just thought it was going to be a story about Illinois or something. But the (laughs) fact that it's actually... Like all my favourite books, it's a book about books. It's a book about writing and a book about what you need to do when you write to create a mixture between reminiscence and lying yes. <laughs> in a greater cause, Absolutely. right? He, he says that in the book. He says, you know, we all lie all the time. Yes. As soon exactly. as you go back great and passage. try and say, this is what happened, you're lying. because It's the meeting with, um, you know, he has this image of the house that's being constructed. Yes. It's all about houses with Maxwell. I mean, one of the, the things about his childhood, when his mother dies, he moves to the house that he grew up in. It was called the, the Wunderkammer, the Wunderkammer. It was the house of wonders. 
and he loses all that and then he's moved to another house where nothing is nothing is in the mm. right place uh, it's just that maybe it's just that the great little thing that he said about his mother which is really important because it is the spirit that when she died the shine went out of everything and stayed out for a long long while i couldn't really manage without her so i managed this in the realm of the unconscious to incorporate her personality into my own i have friends who think they are fond of me but really they are fond of my mother oh, oh. that's why i say i, I find myself i mean the very few books that make me that the, the precision with which he dissects also the great thing about maxwell which for me is a great thing he doesn't say it's all right he no. doesn't say it's all right he does not say that you will get better no he does not say that be positive no be cheerful it'll all be it'll Absolutely. all turn out well no he says some things happen that are so terrible yeah, yeah. that we never recover yeah. and the end where at the end of this yeah. book where he says he went to his uh, therapist okay. and he says i couldn't bear it and he leaves the therapist's office and my brother could street crying. my brother could I other people could yeah i, I couldn't, couldn't. It's, it's one of the great I, for me it's one of the great moments in modern literature it's, um, it's, it's, I, but i do like the way that he said that new york is one of the very few cities where you can just walk <laughs> down the road yes, crying. crying and it's okay <laughs> But it reminds me, actually, there's a more recent novel that was published a couple of years ago called um, All My Puny Sorrows by Miriam Taves, Canadian writer called Miriam Taves, uh, which is... And, and, and this book is... I mean, they're, they're written in a very different way, but they are... Maxwell is writing something which has, which has come to be known as, it seems to me, autofiction. It's this yeah. thing where yes. you, you use memoir and you change what you want to try and reach a greater truth. And in Miriam Taves' book, it's a novel about someone whose sister has suffered from long-term depression and who is constantly trying to do away with herself and succeeds. And it, it turns out that Miriam Taves had very similar um, familial circumstances to deal with. The brilliance of the book, as is the brilliance of Maxwell that John was just talking about, and this sounds lovey-ish, but it is what I mean, is its bravery yes. to confront the raw bedrock, the emotional trauma... Yes. And find the strength to go back to your desk day after day after day to turn it into something else. So it isn't you just writing, and then this happened to me and I yeah. felt sad. Yes. It's transmuting it into this other thing. I'm so full of admiration for people who can do that. There's a lovely line, I think, from that interview in, uh, where he says, as I get older, I, they ask him, you know, what, what have you learned? <laughs> as I get older, I put more trust in what happened which has a profound meaning if you can get at it. But what you invent is important too. Flaubert said that whatever you invent is true, even though you may not understand what the truth of it is. Wow. And, oh, it's, wow. Isn't, totally profound. Isn't, isn't that... That's... You know, people say, why, why fiction? Why? Because actually... The, and I love that idea that the fiction is... What you, what you invent is true, but you just don't know. Yes. It, and that's the great thing. It's for other people, in a way, yes. to complete that. Well, it does help is. you um, reading things like this about confronting tiny moments where you've done something wrong. You know, you tiny moments. I mean, he's confronting walking past a guy and yeah. not, not saying anything. We've all done tiny, tiny things that no one else knows about, but we feel shit about. Yeah. And he's confronting that and saying, in this tiny moment, something shifted for me and I'm going to go back and I'm going to try and put it right by writing about him. Kit, have you got that bit, bit to read? This is, again, what you're talking about is that so long, see you tomorrow thing. That thing of one minute you're here and the next you're not. One minute you're one thing and then yes. you're not. Yes. You have a friendship. In a phrase, the friendship is ended and you only know far long after the event that that was it. Have you got a bit there? Sure. The, the bit I want to read is the way that Maxwell deconstructs what it is to be who we are. And talking about Cletus, he says, about boys he's speaking about, whether they are part of home or home is part of them is not a question children are prepared to answer. Having taken away the dog, take away the kitchen, oh, yeah. the smell of something good in the oven for dinner, 
Also the smell of wash day, of wool drying on the wooden rack, of ashes, of soup simmering on the stove. Take away the patient old horse waiting by the pasture fence. Take away the chores that keep him busy from time to time until they sit down for supper. Take away the early morning mist, the sound of crows quarrelling in the treetops. His work clothes are still hanging on a nail beside the door of his room, but nobody puts them on or takes them off. Nobody sleeps in his bed or reads the broken back copy of Tom Swift and his flying machine. Take that away too while you're at it. Take away the pitcher and bowl, both of them dry and dusty. Take away the cow barn, where the cats, sitting all in a row, wait with their mouths wide open for somebody to squirt milk down their throats. Take away the horse barn too, the smell of hay and dust and horse piss and old sweat-stained leather, and the rain beating down on the ploughed field beyond the open door. Take all this away, and what have you done to him? In the face of a deprivation so great... What is the use of asking him to go on being the boy he was? He might as well start life over again as some other boy instead. Jesus. It's beyond genius. Yeah. It's a deconstruction you know of a life. I know, I've got to, we're all welling up here. That actually is incre- that's an incredible bit of writing. But the knowledge is, the, the thing that he does that's so brilliant is, how can I put this? He, the prose is often very quiet, yes. very straightforward, you know, that will have been preceded by something far easier to handle. And then he suddenly makes these gear changes into these tiny set pieces. Yes. As if to say, I have found a riff. I yes. am going to build on it. Yes. Polish it, it, it. Make it perfect. I love it. Just a, a tiny sentence. Just exactly that gear change. So you've got, you know, Clarence in court, which is hopeless and... He can't make any sense of it, and he's judged to be cruel, and that's why the wife has left him. And then there's this paragraph. He said, Nobody said in court that Clarence Smith was pierced to the heart by his wife's failure to love him, and it wouldn't have made any difference if they had. I know. <laughs> God. That, that's, because I, that's not the question. That's no. not the court case. So, John, you were saying something about... I just want to... Before we run out of time... Yeah. So you knew Maxwell at the end of his life, and his wife Emmy, yeah, Emily, and I went, um, I met them. I went and had tea with them, in, and they, in their apartment, they, their wonderful apartment. They died, didn't they, within a week days of one, one another? Yeah. So I wanted to read. Um, we did uh, Shirley Hazard's "The Great Fire" on Backlisted uh, a while ago, and um, of course Shirley Hazard knew William Maxwell very well. Was one of his writers uh, at the New Yorker. And I just want to read, there's a very touching essay by her uh, in the collection called We Need Silence to Find Out What We Think about Maxwell. I just want to read you this. John, you were saying that read, you know, when it came down to it, Maxwell lived for books mm. and for reading. And uh, Shirley Hazard says, In his last extraordinary year of life, while Emily Maxwell was slowly dying with a grace, a philosophy, and I would say a beauty that remains indescribable, Bill Maxwell reread War and Peace. His solace and pleasure in the book were an event in those rooms. He said, it is so comforting. We rejoiced together over certain scenes, not discussing or dissecting them, but paying simply the tribute of our delight. He would speak of these episodes shedding his silent tears, not in grief, but for the grandeur of common humanity. Bill was steadily eating less, and when the book became too heavy for him to hold, a friend came each afternoon and read it for him. Five days before Emmy's death, the Maxwells, in wheelchairs, went to the Chardin exhibition at the Metropolitan Museum. Two days before Emmy's death and ten days before his own, Bill finished reading Tolstoy's novel. The events encompassed in that last month of their lives, the tenderness quietly exchanged among the friends who visited them, were entirely consonant with the qualities of that departing pair, unforgettable, unforgotten. Bill Maxwell said that he didn't fear death, but that he would miss reading novels. We're going to leave you weeping there's, on there's this a, one. There's a, lover, there's a lovely other, uh, after Emmy died, there's a week, right, his last week, he said, I feel like the locusts who leave their skin behind and fly up the trees. He has, this is, there are some moving deaths, 
this is one that reminds, very much reminds me of Blake dying. Mm. He said that all of the stuff he learned in Sunday school was true. It was very surprising to him, the last thing he was expecting. He said that his understanding was something wonderful. Life is not just pointless, not just about abandonment. Something lifts you up, he said. He asked the people around him to sing, including the daughter he had discouraged from an opera career. Singing, <laughs> singing is the only thing worth doing, he told her. Just love that oh, idea. Beautiful. He said, uh, like, it's like Blake, you know, Blake's wife dying, saying, you know, that Blake died. Singing. You know what he has? Do you know what he has? I bet you do. Do you know what he has written on his gravestone? <laughs> Actually, no, I don't. The work is the message. <laughs> Isn't that oh, great? Wow, fantastic. I'd also so, like to say just quickly. So I read those two novels. I also read some of the the short stories, and we have a little running joke on the, <laughs> on Backlisted about don't read the novels, read the stories, read the journals. The stories, I have to say, are absolutely remarkable. You know, he didn't write a novel between 1961, I think that's right, which is yeah. The Chateau, is it? Yes, The Chateau, 1961. And then this book in 1979-1980. But he wrote a story called Over by the River. Do you know that story? Of course. So it's published in 1974... It's 40 pages long. Yeah. It took him 10 years to yeah. write. So it's like the missing novel, but it's, it's absolutely incredible. But I was saying to Kit, if you asked me to tell you what it was about, beyond me saying to you, well, it's about a family in Manhattan, I would struggle. And yet it, all, it felt like pure writing. Yes. Do you understand yes, what I mean? Completely. Just as though he had found this collection of moments and of impressions, and had woven them together into create a decade's worth of life in 40 pages. It, it, totally extraordinary. And, and several people recommended me other. Lee Randall recommended that I read a story called The Thistles in Sweden. It's a beautiful story. That's an amazing, amazing story. So this has been, this has been one of those battles. They're, of course, listeners, they're always fun. But the pleasure of choosing one book and then other things coming out of that book with this particular episode. Well, he would be... He was so graceful. That was the thing. It was a, probably my most... My happiest literary memory ever was meeting him and his wife. They were so thrilled that the book was being published, that all his books were being... Because we were doing the whole backlist in, in, in the... He had a great, obviously, great uh, love of Europe and, um, uh, and English publishing. And, and it was... Um, he, the, the impeccable manners, and it was, it was... You know, we had tea together, and we, we talked... And I corresponded a little after he, he died in 2000. But if you're interested in writing, if you're interested in literature, if you're interested in story, if you're interested in the, the, the nuts and bolts, he's great. But there's something about So Long See You Tomorrow, there's something about that life with a, uh, the memory, the, the, the reality of his mother's yes. death that he spends his whole life dealing with. He does at one point say, I think I've, this is it with my mother, by the way. I don't, yes. I don't think she will. I, I think I've done this one to death. But. Also, you were going to mention, weren't you, Ancestors, which is not... Ancestors, yeah. which uh, you didn't manage to bring back into print, did you? No, no. it's the one that we didn't do. Ancestors, which I don't know where I put it. it was, it's, this is family history. about that, And it's, it's, it's just remarkable. I mean, it's remarkable. If you could imagine a book of, of a family history goes going back to his Scottish relatives, but moving, it's also a dialogue with living relatives. And, and when was that published? That was published in the se- 1977, I think. Okay, uh, so that's like the book that he's writing mm. yeah. in, the, in the gap between the novels. Yeah, he's, and he's writing stories, endlessly writing stories. I would also recommend his essays on other writers, which are Outermost Dream. Which is called? The Outermost Dream, which is published by Grable. Outermost Dream, yeah. Uh, and also, everybody, often on Backlisted, we try and lob you books that aren't in print or, <laughs> or, or are difficult to come by. You could walk into a bookshop, I like to think, and pick up a copy of So Long See You Tomorrow. Yes. Let's hope. And yes. three or four hours later, you'll have read it and you'll be enriched Absolutely. for doing so, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, Absolutely. we're going to have to stop, much as I'd love to talk about Maxwell <laughs> forever. Thanks to Kit, for, and particularly you. for breeding such beautiful passages from the book. To our producer, Matt Hall, once again, and thanks to our sponsors, Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at Backlisted Pod, 
Backlisted Pod on, uh, what is it, <laughs> facebook.com forward slash Backlisted Pod. And on the page on the Unbound site, which is unbound.com forward slash Backlisted. If you use iTunes to listen to Backlisted, we'd be pathetically grateful if you could rate us or even just leave us a review. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. Thank you. So long. See you next time. <laughs> You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.